0: This morning we continue our walk through Lamentations, hence the morose psalms uh, that we've been singing this morning, songs of lamentation. Indeed, the book when the book is titled Lamentation, you know it's going to again, as we've said, be a difficult read, and it has been, and we've only been through chapter one. So uh, now we enter chapter two, the second in a series of five poems of in which the poet, the prophet, perhaps Jeremiah, perhaps not, is lamenting, grieving, describing in some detail the sad, unbelievably grievous situation that Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah finds herself in. And it's a mess. This is the first week of Lent we mentioned that we bumped our Lenten series here up as affirmations prone to do. You know, we, we sometimes follow the church calendar, but in our own unique way as the Christmas Eve Eve service, as a great tradition here indicates. Um, and so in this case, we needed to move our Lenten series on Lamentations up a week. So here we are in the first week of Lent, but in our second Sermon of Lamentations. And it's a good reminder, uh, a chance for me to remind you that in the season of Lent, it is a season of contemplation. It's a season for hard things. Now again, it's, it's the church calendar. It's not commanded in the scriptures. We use it as a tool for our devotion and for our piety. And if it helps us, use it. But where I believe there is benefit in it, in seasons and times, again, as, as Paul says to the Romans, we don't hold these things as law. Let each man and woman do. According to their conscience. But where I believe it can be edifying is to set a season aside for contemplation of difficult things. The contemplation of the fact that we are creatures, right? That we we are the dust of the earth and owe to our Creator all that we have. And it's a time to remember that as such, we are mortal. We are going to die. Who likes to sing? Psalms of lament, psalms that recognize our frailty. We don't like dealing with these things. We choose and desire very much to keep our eyes averted from all the the, the frailty of humanity. We go to funerals when we have to and when we get the heck out of there. Because we don't like reflecting and meditating on these things for too long. We have to look away. But Lent is a time to remember that you're creatures. You are going to die. Be prepared. And it's also a time to remember that you are sinners. Now, I know, you you know this. You know that you're frail. You know that you're going to die. And yet, it is good to set aside times to force yourself to contemplate that reality. Yes, we confess our sins weekly here at Affirmation. But it is good for you to take a time of heavy and deep contemplation over the fact. And Lent affords you that. Sure, you can do it every day. You could do it all year. But in some sense, good to all do it together. That to join into what the church is doing universally and say, you know, this would be an appropriate time to do it and to join into that. So I encourage you to make use of this time. As such, we have taken up Lamentations as our text because Lamentations takes our face and shoves it down into these realities and says, look here, do not look away. And so we look today at Lamentations chapter 2. The text has already been read, so if you're listening online, I encourage you to go and read it. But for us here, it was our Old Testament reading, and we made our way through it. And once again, as I remind you, it's a challenge for us to say at the end of that, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. But indeed, we must thank God, even for a hard text like this. So let us reflect on the text again this morning. Now, I want to say right off the bat, as I've listened and read, listened to people on Lamentations, read people on Lamentations, I do want us to get away from some idea about the kind of book we're reading. This is not a book about suffering per se. This is not a book about how we deal with suffering and how Israel dealt with suffering. Yes, Job is like that, how we deal with it. But that's not what Lamentations is about, though there is terrible suffering in this book. This is not a book about suffering. This is a book about wrath. This isn't how you go through the afflictions that you have to deal with in life and, and how Israel had to deal with them. No, no, no. This is judgment. Now, in some sense, all the suffering we have to deal with in life is judgment. It's coming underneath the cloud of curse that we have to deal with on the other side of Eden. But there are sermons and texts that we could go to, preach and read regarding how Christians are to deal with suffering. This is not one of them. This is a book about God's judgment and his anger in response to the sin of his people. So I want us to consider that. Also, I want us to consider the audience that this book is being written to. This is a book being written to Judah, to Israel to the Old Testament people of God, and they serve a very unique role within the history of redemption. And it's important as we read this text that we understand this book is being written to the holy people of God. And we have to, in order to understand this, we do have to go back for a second to the beginning, that when God created Adam, Adam was the image bearer of God, and as such represented all humanity, and his sin affected all humanity. And when he was cast out of the garden, if you will, all humanity was cast out of the garden and put into exile and barred from having access to God. And then through Abraham, God established Israel and Israel also was now to be a representative of all humanity, but not as an individual, but as a people. And when we think about the history of Israel, it's important to see that it's almost as if we're taking Adam and the Garden of Eden and zooming out and viewing what happened in the garden, but now not in one person, but within a whole people. The illustration I've used for you many times before is like the swab in the back of the neck when you take a strep test. And you get that little swab on the back of the neck and you put it under the microscope and you really can't see whether or not there's strep. And so you have to put it in a petri dish and you got to let it grow for a couple days and then it grows to a point and it magnifies so that you can see what is there. And that's when usually you get the call from the doctor and they say, yes, your child has strep or no, they don't have strep. And it's as if Israel is the swab on the back of the neck of humanity. And God takes Israel and puts her in a petri dish of the Old Testament and lets the sin of Eden grow so that we get to see it magnified, if you will. We get to see the problem with humanity magnified and get a good look at what we are as human beings and what it was that got us kicked out of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, it's it's uh, it seems like just a bad choice. They ate a piece of fruit that was forbidden to them, but in the magnification of Israel, <laughs> We see it in a series of choices, in habits, in disordered affections, in the choosing of other lovers as we thought about in the text last week, in idolatry, in outright rejection of God and in His place other nations and the gods of other nations and the the welfare of other nations. We want to be like the other nations. This is magnified for us. In the Garden of Eden, God said one time, don't do this or you'll surely die. In the story of Israel, it's the voice of God through prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet telling them, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And they continue to do it and do it and do it and do it. It's, it's magnifying for all of us to see what is our nature, the nature of Adam in the garden and the nature of us all. And as such, the wrath and judgment that comes down on them is a statement for all the world to hear. But as such, again, this we're not at the end of a story here. We're at the middle of a story. And as we'll get to in the end, this story is moving toward Christ, the true Israel and the true Adam, who will bring these things and reconcile them all in a way that in this dark moment in Lamentations, I'm not even sure we could anticipate at this point. Well, I want us to break this text this morning, chapter 2, uh, down into a couple things. First, in the first several uh, uh, verses, verses really 1 through 10, we have the prophet's observation and his, I mean, his grief. He, he's observing the situation on the ground, namely the utter destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, the holy city, the temple of God, the people of God, and he is bemoaning it. He's declaring it for us to hear. And I don't know, where we're not going to read it all again, but I wonder as it was read, what did you hear? There's too much here to take all in at one time, but certain things caught your ear They they held up your attention while I was reading. If not, I encourage you to go back and read it again. But I can tell you what caught my ear in reading it. And each time I read it was the personal pronoun that is not just given once or twice in this text, but that is just like a drum being beaten. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in His anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring all around, standing like an enemy. He has bent His bow and his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of his daughter, the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The poet in this poem laments the situation on the ground, but what overwhelms him in the moment is the one who's doing it. He, he, did, he could have written this another way. He could have said, oh, Jerusalem, how bad Babylon did this and Babylon did that and Nebuchadnezzar came in here and then the Babylonians came in like locusts and they did this and they did that. But that's not what he says. That's what happened. The Babylonians came in like an army of locusts storming over the wall, flooding into their houses, obliterating everything, uh, 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 running a siege against the city as you hear in here, starving them out. But that's not what the poet sees. And here it takes the eye of the prophet. It takes the eye of the theologian. It takes the eye of the poet. To see in the Babylonian hordes. And amidst all the chaos of the Babylonian invasion, to see in that the hand of God himself. And maybe those who are deluded and who are in the midst of it don't see it. It feels like a political crisis. It, it feels like an economic crisis. It feels like a meltdown in foreign policy. It feels like, I don't know what it is. But the poet sees he, 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 his has done this. And really, very, very <laughs> disturbing language Of course, all this and what the Lord has done, profaning his kingdom and his princes and so forth. But maybe most painful of all is in verse five the Lord was like an enemy. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. God has turned his fierce anger toward his people and become unto them an enemy. And that is a disturbing reality for us to even contemplate the enmity of God. But again, it's important for us as we stand in the midst of this text to look back and ultimately to look forward. This text reminds us of the horrible realities of sin, that what sin has done, Adam's sin and Israel's sin, and therefore all of our sin in its microcosm And in its macrocosm, what sin has done is made God our creator, our father, our enemy. This is a concept, I think, that we, we, modern human beings just can't even fathom the idea that God would be an enemy to us. But Paul says in Romans 5, while we were enemies, God loved us and sent his son for us. But don't ignore that first part. There was a time when we were enemies of God. And that's what sin has done. It has set everything upside down. God created man in his image to reflect his image and to be the radiance of his glory. And in our sin and rebellion, we have made God an enemy of ours. We became his enemy and we made him our enemy. That that is what sin did. And when you hear the promise in Genesis 3, when God says, I'm going to set everything right, right, the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, the language is one of enmity. He says to Satan now, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. But what he's saying in there is, I am going to restore enmity to where it belongs. What sin has done is made my creatures and I enemies. And you and my creatures, Satan, have become friends and allies. But what I'm going to do, the, the first statement of gospel reconciliation is what he's going to do is he's going to restore enmity to where it belongs. Right now there's enmity between God and his people. But Satan, the day will come when I will restore enmity between you and the woman. And as such then, return my creatures into relationship with me. So the poet here laments this grievous thing. I don't think you could say anything worse than that God and his creatures, God and his people have become enemies. Well, The poet goes on then to now express his own pain over this. In verse 11, my eyes fail with tears. My heart is trouble. My bile is poured out. I'm like vomiting. When I reflect on the status of this, this is so grievous that I'm crying. I'm I'm dehydrating myself with tears and I'm vomiting on the ground because of what I see around me. How can this be? that the people of God are in this kind of condition. Everything's being torn down, the people are starving to death, and as we heard, even even cannibalizing their own families because of of the the hard starvation. And then in verse 13, he asks a key question. How can I console you? what, What is there that I can say What is there that I can do that can possibly bring any relief to this? How can I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? There's the question of the whole poem. Who can heal you? Who can undo this? This seems so grievous and so disastrous, it seems beyond consolation. It seems beyond healing. And the poet is grieving it and leaves out a question for us, the reader, to wonder, is there anyone that can heal? Is healing even a possibility in these circumstances? Now, you know, spoiler alert, you, you you know the answer to this question. But we can feel ourselves within the depths of the poet's despair. Is there any consolation? Now, what is their need? What is the problem? He goes on in verse 14 to describe the, the need they have. Here, Israel, here's your problem. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. You have been led down a road of darkness you have been sold a bill of goods Israel this is the world of hurt that you're in your prophets have betrayed you just like in first Thessalonians our word of exhortation today first Thessalonians 5 right they say to you peace and safety it's all gonna be fine don't worry don't worry this is just a bump in the road every kingdom goes through this it's all gonna turn out fine right elsewhere In Jeremiah, he says, beware of those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And here, the the author of Lamentations, the poet is saying, this has been the problem for you. They have deceived you with their visions, telling the kings what they want to hear, because those are the only prophets that actually make it. Because the ones who speak honestly, you get rid of them. Who the heck wants that prophet? You don't want that prophet. Prophets learn pretty quickly, unless they're really faithful. What gets you promoted and what gets you fired, you know? I have to think about this even as a boss myself. It's like, you gotta be careful because a person comes to you and complains about something. This is gonna be a revealing moment for the whole company. Bite that person's head off, and let me tell you one thing you don't find anymore are prophets who confront. You find a lot of prophets prophets who kiss your butt and tell you, "Well, boss, everything's going great. Because they saw what happened to the last prophet, who told you, hey, we got a problem here. This, this policy you did did not work out well. And that person got their head chopped off. Everybody else gets the message really quickly. And this is what happens within these kingdoms. The prophets learn pretty quickly and they come all oh, with everything's rainbows and butterflies. And it's all going to be fine. Peace, peace. But there is no peace. And Israel, that has cost you. You need a prophet. You need a prophet who will preach the truth to you. You need a prophet that will uncover your sins for you and who will tell you what the real problem is, even though it's hard. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that's why we're studying Lamentations. Let the prophet and the poet of Lamentations be that for you, an honest prophet, who can say, no, 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 don't look away, don't look away, I know this is a hard text, I know you don't wanna say thanks be to God at the end of this text, but look here. This is the reality that humanity suffers under. Do not look away. And so we have the problem. Their prophets. Their priests and their kings. Remember, earlier in the text, it tells us their priests and their kings are gone. Their kings have now been cast out to the nations. They've failed in leading. Their priests have been spurned by the Lord. So all three of these key figures, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, a group of three that we as Christians know very well because they point forward to the work of our Savior, have all failed them and now to the Lord are nothing. And here Israel is like a ship at sea, absolutely rudderless, no leadership and been kicked to the curb. So the call in verse 18, so what do we do? The heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise and cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the Lord. Lift up your hands toward him for the life of your young children who will faint from hunger at the head of every street. Turn. Do not be angry at Babylonians right now see with the poet what's happening here the judgment that the Lord is inflicting and turn and weep and wail to the Lord confess your sins to him and then finally the poet turns to the Lord so first he just expresses the problem on the ground then he then he opens his own heart and and, and speaks you know, about his own feelings and his own misery over these things. But then in verse 20, he turns to the Lord. And we have this same call in in the first poem. Behold, O Lord. And in verse 20, see, O Lord, and consider. Here's his prayer to the Lord. Lord, look. As I'm telling the people not to look away, Lord, I'm asking you not to look away. But see this desolation that has been wrought upon your people see, O Lord, and consider to whom have you done this? Notice he he does not back off. It's not like when he's talking to Israel. It's like he did this, he did this, he did this. But now when he talks to the Lord, he's like, look what the Babylonians have done. Now he's consistent. Lord, look what you've done. And look at the one to whom you've done it. And then he he uses an amazing word. In that third line, See, O Lord, and consider to whom you have done this. Should. Should the women eat their offspring? The children they have cuddled? Should the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Notice he's asking the Lord this ethical question. He's asking the Lord a question of appropriateness. Lord, is this right? Is this fitting? This doesn't appear to be fitting, Lord. Now, this this question and this word is on my mind because I'm reading with my sophomores. We're, we're, we're right at the point of the forming of the Nicene Creed in, in my church history class. Well, now we're, we're past that. but um, And we're reading Athanasius' book on the incarnation. And it's a joy to read with the kids. It's a challenge, but it's a joy. And Athanasius, St. Athanasius, who's there at the Council of Nicaea, he's really the hero of the Council of Nicaea in 325. Athanasius is arguing with a man and trying to argue why, in fact, the incarnation needed to happen. And one of the arguments he makes, the first argument he makes is that, you know, basically God had a dilemma of being merciful and just and how do you reconcile these two things? And he shows how really it's only in the incarnation that God could reconcile these two things. But then he goes, but here's a second dilemma, he tells his, his, his reader. And the argument he uses here is one of fittingness. He says it's not fitting that God would make a creature and bestow his image upon them and then just destroy them. And so God creates man in his image, but then man sins. But what is God to do? And the, the language Athanasius uses for this is one of fittingness, that it's not appropriate. It, would not, it doesn't seem right or fitting that God would just crumple up his, his image bearer and throw him away and say, well, oh, forget that. That's just the kind of God he is. That's not fitting and appropriate. And here... Here, the the prophet picks up on this language, Lord, is this the way it should be? Now, he's not questioning a matter of justice. Absolutely, this is just. That's not the question the prophet's asking. The prophet is saying, Lord, this just doesn't seem fitting. It it doesn't seem consistent with, with who you are. And how you have promised your people and how you have loved your people that, Father, you would create women and they would eat their own children out of such desperate starvation. Lord, it doesn't seem fitting that your priests would be slain in the sanctuary. And indeed it's not. And we know it's not ultimately fitting for God to leave the situation like this because he does not leave it like this. That God does not simply bring his wrath down and his judgment down and leave it there and say, you know what, I'm done with this. But God actually does the very thing that the author of Lamentations, I'm not even sure, could really anticipate how it would be done. Who can heal you? Only one can heal you. And that's Athanasius' boy. If this is not fitting, there's only one who can undo it, there's only one who can make it right. And it will be none other than God himself that will have to undo this mess on behalf of his people. And brothers and sisters, we find out it will be costly. It's not done with a flick of a wrist. It's going to be done by God the Son himself entering into this very grief, into this very lament, into this very nightmare of wrath. That's why we chose that text. For our New Testament reading this morning, namely that of the crucifixion of the Lord, where his enemies are hissing at him, as we're told here. You know, the, the, the poet here is, is bemoaning the fact that the enemies of God's people are mocking them and going, oh, this is, this is the special people of God? Look at them now. Don't you hear the voice? of those around Jesus at that time? You say you're the Son of God. Come down. What are you doing there then? You're the special, only begotten Son of God being beaten and whipped and spit upon and nailed to a tree? This is the one God loves above everyone else? Jesus the Son enters into this very scenario. This picture we're getting here is not how do you handle your suffering when you're going through suffering, though I'm sure there's lessons we could pull out from it. But that's not what this text is about. This text is about the wrath of God against the idolatry and sin of his creatures. This is a picture of the suffering of our Lord. Remember why we're studying Lamentations. At the end of the day, the season of Lent is to prepare you for Holy Week just to get your mind right so that when we now come to the contemplation of the entrance of our king into Jerusalem, his trial, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection, our souls, the the ground is tilled in our souls. In Lamentations chapter 2, God turns, if you will, his tabernacle into a garden. He turns the ground over. And this text turns the ground of our soul over. This this text should trouble us deeply. It should make our knees a little wobbly, as we thought about in 1 Corinthians 5, because you deserve no less than this. Eating your own children is, 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 is mercy compared to what you deserve and what I deserve. That's, that's how we can't even, our minds can't get around the nature of what our sin is deserves. We deserve more than this. So our knees start to buckle. But then we hear Paul say, as he does in 1 Thessalonians 5, but you were not appointed unto a day of wrath. Why not? What happened between Lamentations 2 and 1 Thessalonians 5? And the answer is Golgotha. Golgotha, where finally a prophet came and told you what you needed to hear. Not only did he tell you, he demonstrated in his own flesh what your sin deserves. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man, son of God. The hymn writer says in Stricken, Spitten, and Afflicted, you want to know what your sin deserves? Look at the cross and estimate the weight of its guilt. Look, see who bears the awful load. Tis the Christ, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. That's what it took to deal with your sin. And here the prophet reveals this to you fully and clearly, indisputably upon the cross. And there on the cross, your priest atones for your sin and covers your sins and heals you in a way no one else, nothing else could heal you. Your priest does what the priests of Israel could not do and did not do. And there on the cross, crowned with a unique crown, a crown of thorns, with the placard above his head, Jesus, King of the Jews, is your king. Finally being a faithful king, right to the bitter end, bearing the guilt of his people so that he might deliver his people from all their enemies. This is the only way out of Lamentations too. And brothers and sisters, it has happened. And therefore, Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 5, but you were not appointed unto wrath. Indeed, brothers and sisters, you were not, for you cling to Christ your Savior, who alone is your hope from this. So two things. One, we need to look at this text, and we need to soak in it, and we need to feel the desperation of it. Because if you don't feel the desperation of this text, and you don't allow yourself to wallow in there, little. Then again, the gospel becomes a trope. The gospel becomes a cliche. But if you allow yourself to settle into this text and to feel the horridness of it, then discover in Christ the healing that only He could bring. Then our hearts can truly leap for joy. But you can't skip Lamentations 2 to get to the cross. So brothers and sisters, I charge you, Read Lamentations 2 again today, and with the prophet, feel the angst, but then look through it to the end of the story that you know well in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, don't let us look away, we pray. Our sins deserve more than even these shadows and types that we see in a difficult and challenging and horrid text like this. But you have placed this book in your holy word that we might read it, that we might see it, that we might meditate upon it, that it might prepare us for the coming of our Savior, for the celebration of our Savior. So we ask that you would do that work in our hearts this week. Prepare us to celebrate together the death and resurrection of our Lord, our prophet, our priest, and our king, and the healing that he alone could bring. We thank you. Lord, that you did not find it fitting that we, your creatures, should perish, but that you sent your only begotten Son into the world, that all who believe and trust in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.